Lord Jesus, I just think of, for me, this is my fourth just extended fast. And um, to look back at the last four years, you've just been so faithful uh, to move radically in my life and in the church. And um, Lord, to provide and to bring victory and uh, to just equip and, uh, and most of all, Lord, to just draw me closer to you and think of this church. It'll be the third extended fast for this church and, um, and just what you've done in people's lives over those years and how you've moved them to fast um, regularly throughout the year, not just one time a year. And Lord, I just pray that as we do this survey through your word, that your spirit would just speak to us, Lord, and your spirit would just bring out the gospel uh, and that you'd move us to fast because you fasted first, Lord. Those 33 years that you left the privileges and rights of deity and came and humbled yourself as a man to be here on this earth only to be murdered and mocked and, and crucified, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just take us all deeper in relationship to you and... Uh, Lord, let us just have our eyes on your splendor as we go through the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, it seems fitting uh, to be moving toward our week of fasting as a church, which will begin next Sunday, March 4th, and go through next uh, that Saturday, uh, closing Saturday evening with a break the fast potluck. Uh, it seems fitting to be uh, studying and moving towards this week of fasting. Uh, as this past week, we saw Ash Wednesday, uh, which was the beginning of Lent, uh, a time that Christianity has historically used to prepare for the upcoming Easter celebrations. And, uh, you know, Lent is not really kept by most evangelicals, and I never really knew much about it um, or paid it much thought until... Actually, this last week, uh, some of the blogs that I follow and, and a lot of men that I really respect and have been reading their sermons, um, you know, have been writing a lot about it. And so it kind of opened my eyes to um, just, uh, you know, setting aside um, my, my passions and my worldly pursuits and just really looking at Jesus, you know, especially preparing my heart to celebrate his resurrection and to remember Passover and how it all points towards, uh, you know, Jesus, the lamb uh, who was slain before the foundations of the world, being killed for our sins. And so just kind of having my eyes open to this, you know, discipline of even Lent, uh, an extended period of various sorts of fastings. Uh, and while there's no scripture passage forbidding Lent or advocating Lent, you know, it's Good to prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection, am I right? And sometimes it's not until, you know, the night before when we're out at the grocery outlet buying a whole bunch of colored Easter eggs, you know, or things like that, chocolate bunnies, uh, that we even start to think about the resurrection again. And so how cool to like, you know, be joining those that are participating in Lent and just say, hey, I want to prepare my heart to just all out celebrate the resurrection and what it means for my life. As uh, Trevin Wax said in his blog, this season serves as a time of reflection upon the sufferings of Christ. It is a season of repentance, a time of dying to self, 
that anticipates new life on the other side, just like the last days of winter anticipate the arrival of spring. As, it's funny, this morning, just doing some more research, Piper wrote a blog yesterday where he said, Lent or no Lent, not doing some things you feel like doing is the daily pattern for the disciples of Jesus. As Luke 9.23 says, it is a daily discipline. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross yearly. Oh, thank goodness it's only year. No, daily and follow me. When we are resurrected and we're in the presence of the Lord, there will be no times of fasting. There will be no self-denial because none of our desires will be sinful or foolish until we have those sinful desires and foolish desires taken away. We have this scripture in front of us that daily we're to carry our cross, deny ourselves for the pursuit of Christ. Paul spoke a lot about the disciplines of self-control. You guys remember in Acts 24, 25, we just went through the book of Acts. When Paul was preaching to Felix, he reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Interesting that in that one sermon that he got before this ruler, he reasoned about self-control. He reasoned about discipline. The Holy Spirit led Paul to write down Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as all being fruits of the Holy Spirit. He made it a qualification to be an elder. That elders would be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We know that discipline is something that athletes know much about. You know, as Paul said, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Exercise, food, diet. And so Paul, you know, he had very little trust in the desires that his body threw at him. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. And that's actually kind of a non-injurious translation. Literally, the verse says, I give my body a black eye (laughs) and I make it a slave. Talk about bringing your body under subjection. Richard Foster, I'll quote him a few times today. He's professor of theology and writer in residence at Friends University in Kansas. He's best known for his books, uh, books, Celebrations of Disciplines. And he writes this. The disciplined person is the person who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Now I can take a basketball and I can get it into the hoop eventually. But I cannot take a basketball and get it into the basketball hoop when it needs to get into the basketball hoop. You see, I am not a disciplined basketball player. But this ability to have the power to do what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, is so crucial in all of life. But it is never more central than in the life of the Spirit, because it is this life that impregnates and infiltrates and dominates absolutely everything we do. It is the disciplined person who can feast when feasting is called for, and fast when fasting is called for. In fact, the glutton and the extreme ascetic 
have precisely the same problem. They cannot do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. In my research, as far as I know, there was not a single full-length book and all, at all on the subject of fasting from 1861 through 1954. That's a period of almost 100 years. Now, why wouldn't anybody in a period, 100 years of history, write a book on this incredible tool and weapon and spiritual discipline of, of fasting? If it's so important in, to Christianity, well, two different thoughts. First of all, there was a reaction and a rejection to the Middle Ages and the piety therein. You know, the, the monks and, uh, you know, the, the brutal self-discipline of starving yourself and wearing camel skin underwear, you know. And uh, they do sell those at Kmart, by the way. Um, you know, or beating yourself with a whip, you know. And so that was just so hardcore. Let's just get away from it as far as we can and we'll never fast or read my Bible again, okay. Um, the other uh, extreme uh, is that, you know, human has this positive attitude it's a positive virtue to satisfy literally every human craving and we kind of live that way in america today you know if it feels good if it tastes good if it looks good if it sounds good let's just completely saturate ourselves in it all the time and so if you're telling me to take a break from it you're wrong man you know or you got problems you got issues you're some kind of a you know, Bible thumper, Jesus freak. And yeah, that's actually true. Um, but as we've been looking at the Christian experience in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, these past few weeks, we see that it is a normal daily Christian discipline to be in warfare. You know, only the saints delight in the law of God at their depths. And here's how they talk, okay? Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Most of you know it because we camped out in it for a while. It says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, so here's a guy who no doubt has a struggle with sin, but he delights in the law of the Lord. In his inward man, he concurs with the law of God that it is good. And we've noticed that the Roman 7 guy is a guy that's constantly trying to work what is good and what is pleasing in the sight of the Lord, but in that he's working out of his flesh. We remember some 35 times the words I, me, or myself are being used. But then we get to Romans chapter 8 where we see that, no, it's not about me and how hard I'm going to try, but it's about the Holy Spirit who's in me living it out for me. And all I need to do is just rest in the power of the Holy Spirit, surrender to his workings in me. But it's that daily battle that's going on. Galatians 5.17 says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But we studied, you know, in depth last week, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, where Paul says, hey, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, key phrase, by the Spirit, 
you put to death the deeds of the body or you mortify the deeds of the body or you basically kill sin by the spirit, you will live. So last week we looked at how we need to daily be killing sin. Now make no mistake, sexual desires are not our only deadly desires that need to daily be put to death. Anger, resentment, fear of man. That's I got to kill that daily. Fear of man. Some of you guys are scary. Discouragement. Self-pity. Self-promotion. Hardness. Envy. Moodiness. Sulking. Indifference to suffering. Laziness. Boredom. Passiveness. Lack of praise. Lack of joy in Jesus. Disinterest in others. Lack of care of the Great Commission. Lack of care for the return of Christ. Things that we need to daily be putting to death. Galatians 6, 8 says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Fasting is a slap in the face of your flesh telling it you are not in charge. You see? Check it out. You don't rule anymore because you want to eat and notice something. You're not eating. You want to watch. Guess what? You ain't watching. You want to hear. You aren't hearing. And so as we look at fasting today, We look at both a prescription and a description given by our heavenly doctor on how to sow to the spirit that we might reap everlasting life. We're going to look at this weapon given by the commander of the Lord's army, our God, who will show us this paramount avenue for stepping into the power, intimacy, healing that's available for his children today. So what is fasting? Some of you, this is year three on studying fasting. Next year, some of you guys will be preaching it, okay? You're going to have it down. Uh, For some, this is going to be a new subject to you. It's been said it's easy to speak of fasting when the stomach is full. I mean, right now, you guys are going to leave this place. You're going to be like, Lord willing, you know, you're going to be like, woo, we're going to fast for a week, you know, because you're not hungry right now. Next Monday, actually next Sunday by noon, (laughs) you're going to be hating me, okay? It was Kevin's idea. Um, Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, refers to the writing of an old Puritan called the soul-fattening institution of fasting. In that sermon of Spurgeon's entitled, A Desperate Case, How to Meet It, back in January 10th, 1864, it was delivered. He says, and what is fasting for? That seems the difficult point. It is evidently practiced oftentimes in the life of our Lord and advised by him to his disciples. It's not a kind of religious observance in itself meritorious, but a habit when associated with the exercise of prayer, unquestionably helpful. I am not sure whether we've not lost a very great blessing in the Christian church by giving up fasting. He goes on to say, Martin Luther, whose body, like some others, was of a gross tendency, felt as some of us do, that in our flesh there dwelleth no good thing, in another sense than the apostle meant it. And he used to fast frequently. 
He says his flesh was wont to grumble dreadfully at abstinence, but fast he would. For he found that when he was fasting, it quickened his praying. There's a treatise by an old Puritan called The Soul Fattening Institution of Fasting. And he gives us his own experience that during a fast, he has felt more intense eagerness of soul and prayer than he'd ever done at any other time. Some of you, dear friends, may get to the boiling point in prayer without fasting. I do not think others of us can. We know that fasting is a response to God's love and grace. It's a response that the work of the Holy Spirit does within us. That we could understand what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when he answers and says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is that all about? <laughs> we know from Habakkuk, we studied in depth that even though there's no olive on the vine or uh, cattle in the stalls, you know, I still have a bunch of energy and I could jump over, you know, a thousand hills. Where does that kind of energy come from when there's no food in the pantry? These times of fulfilling hunger are because communion with God has taken place in our soul. And it's only possible because Christ has redeemed us. We've been looking a lot at the gospel and how it restores fellowship with Christ. Fellowship with God. And actually, as 1 John tells us, fellowship with every member of the Trinity. As 1 John chapters, uh, chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 say, and we'll just focus on verse 3, that truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things I write to you that your joy may be full. We have this fullness of joy just by having fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13 says that we have this communion with the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2 says that we have this fellowship with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 6, verses 47 through 58 say, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the manna. <laughs> if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the whole world. And then the Jews quarreled. How can this guy give us flesh to eat? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because the Father... Uh, because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats his bread will live forever. This is re repetition in there. I'm the bread. I'm the bread. Feast upon me. Eat. Drink. You'll live forever. There's this fulfillment of soul that transcribes to fulfillment even within body. Communion with Jesus, it satisfies our deepest hunger. Matthew 9, 14, the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Rory, why'd you go on about the whole wineskin thing? I mean, that seemed a little bit redundant, you know? Well, technically, the whole context on the whole passage regarding the wineskins or the cloth, the new cloth put over an old garment, the context is fasting. The context is an old school fast that was done by the Pharisees for religious appearance and religious outward observance. And then there's a new fast that happens after the bridegroom is taken away. When he's gone, then the disciples will fast. A New Testament fast will be the new wineskins. Fasting for the sake of being righteous like the Pharisees were doing doesn't work. It's like putting new wine into an old wineskin. The fermentation process will cause a cracking and a spilling. But the New Testament fasting is fasting in light of the gospel, in light that we're already pleasing to God, not because of what we're doing or because we fasted for 40 days, but rather because Jesus fasted for 33 years. That is why we are well-pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And so now we have this new basis to fast. We have a new mindset in our fasting, that it's all been one in Christ, and it rests on the bridegroom. So, if you want to be part of the fast, you must taste of the gospel. You must be made alive in the spirit before you fast. You can, right now, in your heart, respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction And allow him to indwell you, that you might be born again. Don't even wait for the end of the Bible study. Be born again now if you hear his voice. You might also note that Jesus connects Christian fasting in this passage with our longing for the return of the bridegroom. The church is called the uh, bride of Christ, and we're to put this earnestness and fasting behind our prayer, crying out, thy kingdom come, crying out, bridegroom come, crying out, Maranatha, Lord come. Fasting is this physical expression of our heart hunger for the bridegroom to come back. The second coming of Jesus. As we study God's word, we need to grow in this area of fasting. There's certain subjects that we read over and over again, but certain subjects we don't stop and meditate on, and usually those are the ones that aren't super comfortable to us. The Bible speaks of fasting dozens and dozens of times. Practically put, fasting is denying the physical to seek the spiritual. It's saying, I'm denying the physical food because, God, I'm hungry for you. It's having a physical longing and transposing it to a spiritual key. Saying, just as I hunger, I long for you, God. Take my stomach, Lord, and make it a longer for you. 
Sometimes we Christians should fast just to prove I don't live on bread alone. I don't live on bread alone, but I need you, Lord. I long for you. I'm hungry for you. As Piper said, fasting is an expression of a longing for God with our hunger. We've been uh, kind of distributing the book God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. And uh, if you've finished those, why don't you bring them back so that other people could read them. But um, some quotes will be given today. Anyways, so um, here's something that uh, God's Chosen Fast says. It says, when someone does not like the meaning of something in the Bible, they are tempted to spiritualize it and so rob it of its cutting edge. It can no longer cut. In the main, this is what the professing church, the evangelicals, have done with the biblical teaching on fasting. To fast, we are told, is not to only abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communion with God. Or they say, fasting means to do without, to practice self-denial. We have only to widen the meaning enough and the cutting edge is gone. It is true there are many things that hinder our communion with God and many things that we need to practice self-denial, but the fact still remains to fast means not to eat. As Andrew Murray said in his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, fasting helps to express, deepen, to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. In fasting, I'm not saying I long for you, God. I'm showing I hunger for you, God. Hunger for God is something that's expressed throughout the scriptures. Second to last chapter in Revelation speaks of hunger towards God and thirsting for God and, and having that thirst quenched by God. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, I love it just because of the language, where it says, Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yeah, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. This isn't a physical food that is spoken of here. It's this spiritual food that is so much more rich and satisfying and fulfilling. It's based in our creator. Satisfied Christians are in danger if they find their satisfaction in work, finishing a project, having a good career. You're satisfied in your home, the way it looks. You're satisfied with the hobbies you've got going on. You don't need any more Jesus. But the Christian should always be crying out for more, more, more of you, God. You have a spiritual sickness today if you are content with where you are at in your relationship with Christ. We should always be going deeper, or as the Chronicles of Narnia puts it, higher up and further in. John Piper also said, God rewards fasting because it is the cry of our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy but him. 
He must reward this cry because he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's all about his glory. He's glorified when we just long for him. And so he responds. When we seek him, we will find him. You guys remember in John chapter 4, verses 31 through 34, when the disciples urged Jesus to eat. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know of. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And the next week or, you know, the week after this week, we're going to be saying that same thing. Lord, our food is to finish your work. Our food is to do the will, to, to finish the commission, to operate in our giftings, to glorify you, to be worshipers. And may the Holy Spirit today awaken us to understand how important, how vital fasting is to our Christianity Six things I want to show you here in the scriptures today. Fasting is a means, first of all, of humbling oneself in the sight of the Lord. Secondly, fasting is directly connected with direction, knowing which way we should go. Fasting is directly connected with insight and revelation from God. Fasting comes with uh, divine intervention in the Bible. Fasting is a spiritual weapon that is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that otherwise wouldn't come down. Arthur Wallace says, In giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete, and she's thrown it down in some dark corner to rust And there it has laid for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. Man, don't let this weapon be left in the armory. Pull it out. Use it. And sixthly, fasting with a pure heart and a right motive can provide us with a key to unlock doors where other keys have failed. You know, it's a shame that fasting is a subject and a practice that's been neglected by most Christians and is totally undiscovered by others. With the Holy Spirit's help, we can rediscover the truth so it'll powerfully play a part in our life. In the Old Testament, we'll look in depth, but just a quick survey. Abraham's servant fasted when he sought a bride for Isaac. Moses fasted on Mount Sinai. Hannah fasted when she was praying for a child. David, on several occasions. Elijah, after his victory over Jezebel. After a victory, he fasted. Wow, fast and thanksgiving, never thought of it. (laughs) Ezra, when he was mourning over Israel's faithlessness. Nehemiah, when he was preparing to uh, trip back to Israel. Esther, when God's people were threatened with extermination. Daniel fasted on numerous occasions. The people of Nineveh, including the cattle, fasted. The cattle probably fasted involuntarily, but too busy to feed the cows, right, Adam? (laughs) In the New Testament, Jesus fasted in preparation for his public ministry. 
The early church fasted when they were sending out missionaries or appointing church leaders. And Paul, the spiritual giant, fasted often. In church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, David Brainerd, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards all wrote in their journals how fasting was a powerful and integral part of their life. And so we're going to be fasting, but what's the biblical precedent? Just a, you know, more than a few random verses you know, sporadically through the Bible or what? Um, you can flip to Judges chapter 20, verse 26. And while you're flipping there, we ask, why has this practice of fasting been lost? Probably because there are golden arches and pizza palaces on every corner of our town or the cities that are around us. We really don't hunger enough. Physically or spiritually, we settle for outside things. Seems to be only when we have a desperate need, we fast. If you don't fast, it basically is transposed to that you don't really have a longing. Fasting, one man put, is born of desperation and longing for God to break in and to change me. Change me so that I'll treat my wife differently. Or so that, so that I'll passionately evangelize my neighbors. So I'll have victory over this sin. Fasting in the Old Testament. Judges 20, uh, verse 26 through 28, and then we'll jump down to verse 35. And here we see a corporate one-day fast. In verse 18, you'll just jump back a couple verses. Um, they were going to war against the Benjamites. They prayed, went out to war, and they lost. By verse 23, they came back, licked their wounds, they prayed, they wept until evening, went out to battle again, and lost again. But by verse 26, we see that they fasted, and then they won. It says here, then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. The Lord defeat. Oh, jump down to verse 35. It says there that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All of these drew the sword. So when they were fasting and praying, God spoke and gave the victory. Victory that they were not able to accomplish up until this point. Israel and their army had 400,000. Benjamin only had 26,000. Seemed like no contest, right? When Israel first attacked Benjamin, they lost 22,000 guys. They asked the Lord, went up again. God said, go up. Then they lost 18,000 guys. But then they fasted and prayed. God said, go up. And he gave them the victory. David fasted in 2 Samuel chapter 12, fasting in his failure after committing adultery with Bathsheba, knowing he'd screwed up, knowing he'd made a mess of things. And crying out to God to be gracious. Jehoshaphat, one of my favorite passages on fasting in 2 Chronicles 20. 
we see a corporate prayer and fasting time. Three nations came to battle against Jerusalem. All of these nations were bigger than Israel. As they came up to the battle, they were at En Gedi and were so close to Jerusalem that Jehoshaphat became very afraid. He went into this fearful state and set himself to seek the Lord and to proclaim a fast. He called for Judah to fast, and this led to one of the greatest victories in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 20, verses 3 and 4. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and all of the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Then starting in the latter half of verse 12, this was their prayer, Jehoshaphat's prayer. We have no power against this great multitude. It's coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. Can I read that again? Because <laughs> this might be your life right now. This might be your heart in seeking after the Lord. I don't have power against this great multitude coming against me in my life. I don't even know what to do. But Lord, my eyes are on you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, their children, they stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. Verse 15, and he said, Listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Don't be afraid nor be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down and stand against them. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Some of you will fast this week. In desperation, seeking out for the Lord, wanting more of Jesus, knowing that as you cultivate the Spirit... He'll bring great victory over the flesh. He'll bring great victory in other areas of your life. And what a word for you today. As you're seeking the Lord, you won't even need to fight in this battle. You won't even need to fight. Just position yourself to seek the Lord. Stand still. I mean, we're talking, I think it was over three and a half million people that came up against Judah. And, and the prophet just spoke and said, you guys don't even need to fight. Just keep worshiping. Just keep praising the Lord. Just position yourself. Just stand still. Watch him gain the victory. What's awesome is then you look down at verse 21 there in 2 Chronicles 20. When he consulted the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. And we're saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who'd come together, and they were all defeated. Notice the worship band was sent out in the front so that worship would be happening, that victory would come. They, they took such a great plunder from the spoil of these armies that took them three days to gather it all. We expect great victories in marches for, March 4th through 10th. We expect the Lord to fight for us and to gather a plunder that, you know, it's just going to bring such great glory to his name. In Ezra, we see in chapter 8, verse 21, a fast where 
Ezra proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before the Lord to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions and all our possessions, I should say. Not just part of them. There's two things we see here in Ezra 8.21. First of all, fasting is a means by which we humble ourselves. We allow God in. We allow him to convict us of our sins. And we'll see later, then we confess and repent of our sins. Secondly, fasting is a means of receiving direction for ourselves and our house and even all of our possessions. I don't know what I'm supposed to do or where I'm supposed to go or where I'm supposed to move. I don't know if I should sell this stock or invest in this stock. I don't know if I should move my family. Not many jobs in Prineville. I don't know what to do, Lord. Should we have more kids? Lord, is is having more kids going to be best for your mission in my life? That's a big decision. Should I buy this car? Should I buy this boat? Should we buy a house? Should we sell our house? Let's fast about it. Let's pray. Let's position ourselves. We won't even have to fight in this battle. The Lord will fight for us. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 and chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, Nehemiah is grieving over knowing that uh, the city of the Lord is burnt and in ruins over there in Jerusalem. And King Cyrus sees that he's, you know, sorrowful and asks him what the matter is. And Nehemiah fasted and prayed that he'd have the words to speak. And the Lord gave him favor in the eyes of Artaxerxes and resources to rebuild that wall. In chapter 9, revival comes once they've rebuilt the wall. Revival comes through fasting. And we're going to close today looking at Nehemiah chapter 9, but we're not there yet. We'll look at that at the end of the study. Then you jump to the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Haman the Agathite convinced King Ahasuerus that every Hebrew person was to be annihilated and that the Persians could, should plunder their wealth. And it says in Esther 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out to the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many laid in sackcloth and ashes. Then you jump down to verse 15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who were present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so this was a time of great crisis for God's people. They faced total annihilation, a holocaust, if you will. But you know what? In a time of great crisis, God's people fast. God's people should learn by the examples set before us, and we should fast. Satan has always wanted to destroy Israel or thwart God's promises from the Messiah all the way up through David's line, even to the people of God, even till he returns. And so uh, Esther declared this three-day absolute fast. There's different kinds of fasts we see in the scripture. Just vegetable fast, 
or just a fasting from vegetables. <laughs> it's my fast. Okay, um, I'm on an ice cream fast, you know, I'm only eating ice cream. Um, you know, and here we see a complete no food or water, total fast. They were desperate for God to move. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And you know the rest of the story. Miraculously, the king couldn't sleep that night. And so he called for the books of the Chronicles of Judah to be brought before him. And as he's reading, he reads about how Mordecai was a hero. And he asks, has Mordecai ever been rewarded for what he's done? Mordecai is brought into his presence. He basically shows the, the plans of Haman and how they're wicked. And so by the end of the uh, night, the beginning of the morning, it's Haman who is hung and killed. And he's hanging on the gallows that were prepared for the Jews. Back in World War II, the king called the British to a day of prayer. Two centuries earlier, England was called to a solemn day of prayer and fasting because they were threatened invasion from the French. On Friday, February 6, 1756, John Wesley records in his journal, the fast was a glorious day, one that London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God will hear our prayer, and there will be a lengthening of our tranquility. A footnote in his journal informs us, Humility was turned to national rejoicing, for the threat invasion by the French was averted. Praise God, huh? Even 200, actually, yeah, 200 and a half years, centuries later, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, we can still rejoice in, uh, you know, God's victory there. God's chosen fast says, if there is a local church threatened with discord and division, if spiritual life is waning and worldliness abounding, if conversions are few and backslidings frequent, would not this be a time when the leaders should call the church to prayer and fasting? Isaiah chapter 58 verses 3 through 11 give us God's chosen fast, give us this acceptable fast before the Lord. We also see in the first five verses um, what's not acceptable, an actual sinful fast. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our soul and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. You exploit all your laborers. Indeed, your fast for strife and debate and strike with the fists of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen for a man to afflict, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it a bow to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Verse 6, is this not the fast that I've chosen? Listen to this. To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring into your house all who are poor and are cast out? When you see the naked, you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard and you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry. He will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, 
Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a water garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I think we're going to do an in-depth study on this, you know, waters that do not fail next week as we enter into the fast. We know there from this chapter of Isaiah 58, God doesn't want us fasting for selfish reasons or with the wrong heart or with the wrong attitude. You know, but fasting is beneficial for our personal sanctification and for holiness and for purity as we sow to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will work these fruits out in us. If you look at the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, their sin and their primary sin in sodomy wasn't homosexuality. It was actually their, they were full of pride and they had full stomachs. Ezekiel chapter 16, 49 says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. There's sin going on in your life. And you feel like you're in quicksand. Spend time fasting. Spend time seeking the Holy Spirit, crying out for his power. We're going to breeze through Daniel's. You know, you could just spend a huge, long series on this. But in Daniel chapters 9 and 10, you have the results of fasting and prayer shown that knowledge is given. In Daniel 9, 1 through 3, he seeks the Lord. He understood the, uh, the numbers specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that the Lord would accomplish 70 years of desolations in Jerusalem. This is speaking of the captivity. And Daniel 9.3 says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And so this time of repentance, this time of confession, this time of fasting, you jump clear down to verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing the sins of my people Israel, uh, my sins and the sins of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, began to fly swiftly towards me, reaching me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And so this vision is then given that's one of the most powerful prophecies in the Old Testament, a prophecy of the day that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. An understanding of the fulfillment of the ends of the sins of Israel and the bringing in of the Holy One. All through this time, you know, began the day that he set his heart to, to pray and to fast. Three weeks went by and the Lord came. But the angel says, it was the day you started crying out that I was sent. Daniel chapter 10, you can read it in your own time. Again, just another incredible victory and more knowledge brought through uh, Daniel's fasting and praying. In Zechariah 7, 5, we have one of the most important reasons for fasting given to us, the reason of worship. 
and for more intimacy with the Lord. Zechariah 7, 5 says, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? I always love that passage, you know, just that repetition. Did you really fast for me? And that is the primary goal of our fast, March 4th through 10th, is that we would just want more Jesus. More Jesus. More Jesus. Lord, you can keep the trials coming because I know you'll be with me in them. You'll never leave me or forsake me. But Lord, I want you. I'm hungry for you. Arthur Wallace again says, this is surely the loftiest conception that is a worshiping or a ministering to the Lord, a giving of ourselves to God and only secondary, a means to secure spiritual ends. Why don't you go ahead and turn to uh, Joel chapter 2, if you have your Bible there. I know I've kind of tricked you into not bringing your Bibles to church with the whole slides and everything, but we're going to We're going to skip right now for today, since we're out of time, uh, the New Testament passages concerning fasting. We're going to close with two different passages in the Old Testament. Just kind of lay out the vision for uh, this week of fasting. Joel chapter 2 verse 12 says, Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great, great of kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And then verse 15, blow the trumpets in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes, Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. In verse 15, you see this consecration of a fast. Blow the trumpets. Put it on the website. Put it on Facebook. Get the information out there. We as a church are calling a fast for more of Jesus. For more of Jesus. If you're an old person... Come fast with us. If you're a nursing mom, come fast with us. If you're single or married, come fast. If it's the day of your wedding, come fast with us. If you're the bridegroom or the bride and you're in your chamber, come on out. Cry out fast in some way. Let the children come and fast and pray. Let's consecrate a fast. It might be costly, it might be inconvenient. All self-discipline is costly and inconvenient. Different ways that you may be led to fast during the week. And, And I'm doing this study a week ahead of the start of it so that you all can prepare your hearts and search the scriptures and just cry out, Lord, how would you have me fast? And what should I fast for? And Lord, grow me in this area. Grow me in this area of my life. 
As Richard Foster said, the central idea in fasting is the voluntary denial of an otherwise normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Remember, it is the disciplined person who can can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. So, the 20th century idea of fasting is that it's a voluntary denial of an otherwise normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. You got Arthur Wallace who'd say, hey, to fast means to fast from food, (laughs) okay? And so my encouragement would be, fast from food of some kind. Maybe the Lord will lead you to do, um, we're just going to eat vegetables this week. Maybe the Lord would have you just no food, only water, or only chicken broth, or something like that. Only a juice fast. Maybe there would be a short period where, where just, man, you are so desperate for more of Jesus, for his guiding, for his directing, for his deliverance. You would do a, a total fast. No water, no food. You should let somebody know about that so that they can check on you during the week. Make sure you're still alive. Ryan Smith, who led worship here, a friend of mine a couple weeks ago, you, you guys might remember him, skinny guy. Um, my pastor in Corvallis has forbid him from fasting because he's too skinny. And so he fasts from coffee, and that actually is a huge deal for him. Uh, maybe you'll fast from coffee. You know, we've got to have our Starbucks in our hand, you know, all day long. Or, you know, or that mug. And it's like, you know what? I don't have to have this. I have to have Jesus. Maybe you'll fast from coffee, or you have to watch the news every day. Maybe you'll fast from TV, and you know what? Just to encourage you, this fast, every night, we're going to gather together, and we're going to read through the New Testament. And the goal is from uh, Sunday night through Saturday evening, we'll have read through the entire New Testament. And so instead of watching TV, just come and saturate yourself in the Word of God. Maybe you'll uh, fast fast from Facebook. (laughs) You know, we have to have Facebook, we have to have our Twitter. Maybe the Lord would lead you to fast from that. Maybe you'd fast from just materialism of constantly looking at Craigslist, or I know Pinterest is popular lately. You're convicted, aren't you, ladies? <laughs> Did you hear that? Oh, gosh. Oh. Okay. Those of you techie folks might fast from your iPhone and the apps or your BlackBerry or your Droid. Maybe you should fast from phone calls. Have to have a phone call. Have to talk to someone. I have to. Maybe you should fast from texting. Maybe a fast of silence for a period of time. Amen, right? Okay. (laughs) Isaiah 30 verse 15 says that in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Maybe you're to fast from people only not three times a day because we're going to be getting together and reading through the word. Okay, so it's not the Holy Spirit if you're fasting from people. Okay. Um, Thomas Merton observed, it is in a deep solitude that I find the gentleness of which I can truly love others. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. It is pure affection and filled with reverence for the solitude of others. Solitude and silence teach me to love others for who they are, not for what they say. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a very important little book entitled Life Together. Uh, In one chapter, it's titled The Day Together, and the next chapter is The Day Apart or The Day Alone. And those days are necessary. We know Jesus went alone on the mountain to be just together with the Lord. Might fast from sex. 1 Corinthians 7 shows us that that is an actual fast, believe it or not. 
But it's to be okay with both the, the, both the husband and the wife, lest one fall into temptation. We live in a day where we've got our earbuds in our ears constantly, and we're listening to music. You know, maybe just take those out and just say, this week, I just want to hear from the Lord. I just want to hear from you. You might pray this week of what you want to cry out to the Lord for. You know, we just desire revival in Prineville. Maybe you need a job or healing or spiritual victory, special grace that you don't deserve, deliverance from sinful habits or vices. Ask the Holy Spirit just to lay on your heart what to cry out, what to ask for. New Testament fasts are fasts before big decisions in your life. Again, might be before you have another child or more children or buying a house or a car. You know, moving, accepting another job, taking on another role in ministry. I wrote down just a list of what I, just, I know uh, we're going to be crying out for during the week. And you might just email me and put some more things on this list. But intimacy realized and intimacy restored with Jesus. Vision and direction in our church for world missions. Raising up of elders and deacons and leaders in our church. Revival in Calvary Chapel of Crook County, in that sub, you know, sub points off of that, that there would be repentance and deliverance from sin, that there would be fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit and fresh wind placed in our people's sails, that there'd be the realization of gifts and the giving of spiritual gifts, that we would get callings on our life and how to serve God. That we would have a comprehension of God's word, like in Luke 24, when he opened the disciples' eyes to comprehend the scriptures. And think about how we'll be reading entirely, uh, in context, the New Testament in seven days. That we would have a comprehension of God's word in memorizing God's word. That God would give us minds to memorize. That he would give us the ability to apply his word after we've read it. Also be praying and fasting for revival in Crook County. The end of July, the youth group from uh, Boise, Calvary Chapel, Boise, is going to be coming over and doing outreach in our town. And um, the youth pastor's wife is going to be coming and doing a concert. And we're going to be just loving on people and preaching the gospel. We can fast for revival even in that outreach. And finally, just what I have on my notes, deliverance for the mentally ill and deliverance from substance abuse among those who are named brothers and sisters, that we would have gospel transformation leading to social transformation in our community, that we would have breakthrough in the hearts and minds of the poor that are reached out to at the Oasis. That's just a little list that we compiled, and I'm sure more will come in. The vision for the fast, closing. Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3. It was cool. I was sharing with Rich the vision that I'd had for over a year for this, this year of fasting. And just the Lord gave him a scripture and he immediately sent it towards me and it's just burned in my heart ever since. In Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3, it says, Now in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. 
So we're not going to really be fasting or uh, reading a fourth of the day, but as close as we can get with all of those busy working schedules out there. We're going to be getting together 6 a.m. every morning, uh, beginning Monday. Uh, Get together at noon and get together at 6.30. And the idea is to read about 30 chapters a day of the New Testament together. And, And by the end of the week, to have read the whole New Testament. I remember when I was 15, I went on a missions trip to Hungary. And I remember a gal getting saved in one of the subway outreaches that we did. And uh, she kind of would come during the week and be part of things. And then at the end of the week that we were there, she said, you know what? I got saved on Sunday, and I've read through the whole New Testament uh, in seven days. And I was 15 when I saw that lady do that, and it's just burned on my heart ever since. So um, we're going to be able to join, join her in that some 20 years later. Um, But what a revival here. We see men publicly confessing their sins and the sins of their fathers. Man, we're going to be humbling ourselves. We're going to be confessing our sins, my dad's sins, my mom's sins, my country's sins, the sins of my people, humbling ourselves before the Lord. As Joshua 7 shows us, sin in the camp keeps people from the great victories. Closing, and uh, Stuart, and you can come up with the band. You might say, now I know I don't have time already. Besides, I don't need it. I don't need this time of fasting. Just some correction to that. Elijah needed it. David needed it. Peter needed it. Mary needed it. Paul needed it. Jesus Christ himself needed it. Who do we think we are? God himself. We need these times of sowing to the spirit. And if we need it, we'll find the time to do it. In the last few years, I've heard, how did that fast go for you guys from people within our church? You guys, how'd it go for you? This is, this is a church thing. When the leadership consecrates a fast, man, we just beg of you to prayerfully consider joining us, that it might be, how'd it go for us? How'd it go for us? What'd the Lord do? How deeper have we gone in communion with him? How much more are we satisfied in him? Closing with a quote from Spurgeon. Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never have heaven's gates been higher. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory. Man, I'm excited for it. I'm excited. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's ask the Lord for this week to show us how he would have us participate. Lord, as we worship and just praise you and sing adoration to your name, Lord, we want to just redig the wells that have filled in in our spiritual life. Lord, as you call us to just press in to intimacy in Christ, to cultivate a life of the Spirit. Lord, we can't do it on our own, and we can't do it apart from you. But Lord, we pray this is something that you would do in us by your Spirit. Because we're born again, we get to fast, Lord. Lord, we pray for those in this room that are not yet born again. 
Their fast would be one of religious observance that would end in death. And Lord, we even pray today that your Holy Spirit would just move them to repentance. Lord, that they'd humble themselves before you, confess their sins and repent this morning. Lord, that they would receive the forgiveness that comes through the cross, that comes through your son. As we close this morning, let's take just the the bread and the cup and let's, you can come forward when you're ready, grab those elements of communion, go back. And as you take communion on your own time this morning, man, just declare to the Lord, I'm so satisfied in you, Lord. Lord, I eat of your flesh, I drink of your blood, and I am filled today. You satisfy me. Your blood that covers my sin, washes me white as snow, is satisfies, Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.